We're continuing our series in Isaiah. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you that looks like this, you can find that on page 599. One of the tricky things when you're in the Old Testament is understanding how to uh, deal with God's name, Yahweh. Some translations, when the Hebrew says Yahweh, will just put Yahweh there. Other translations will put the, well, the Hebrew word is Adonai, because um, when Jews would read the, the word Yahweh, they just say Adonai, which means Lord, because they didn't want to say his name. And so um, some translations, when it comes to Yahweh, will put Lord there, but they'll put it in all caps. And uh, every Bible that does that at the beginning of the Bible, you know, in the notes at the beginning of the Bible explain why they do it that way, and our, our translation does it that way. But when we read in the Old Testament, we come to Lord in all caps, we do say God's proper name, Yahweh. So if you're wondering why we do that, there is an explanation at the beginning of your Bible, but that's why we do that. And uh, that name, Lord, in all caps, will be in our passage today, and I will say Yahweh there, as is our custom here. So Isaiah chapter 40, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh? Or what man can show him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom will you liken God? What likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has the stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I shall be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. 
You can be seated as we pray. We've heard your word read, and already your spirit is at work in our hearts. All we ask is that these words that have been read would sink into our souls deep and shape us and change us. That's the work of your spirit. So we are asking for powerful, spirit-wrought transformation which means we're opening our own hearts to what your spirit would do and asking you to work in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. It's hard to wait on God when wave after wave keeps crashing over you. We've cried out to him over and over again. And we wonder if he actually hears, if he actually sees, am I hidden from him? Has he disregarded me? Has he cast me aside? Or is he powerless? I mean, what else can explain the cascading blows that keep crushing down on me? It's exactly what Israel was feeling 2,700 years ago. We know that because of verse 27. Look there. What are they saying? What is Jacob, what is Israel saying? My way is hidden from Yahweh. And my right is disregarded by my God. And Israel is feeling this way because her own rebellion had led to God doing a hard prune on his people. So in Isaiah chapters 1 to 34, the focus was on the Assyrians would crush the northern kingdom and then creep all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, wreaking havoc along the way. But as we just saw last week in chapter 39, the Babylonians are going to rise up. They'll conquer the Assyrians, but they'll also conquer Jerusalem. So this remnant of God's people who'd lost the stability of King Uzziah's reign, who'd already been brutalized by the Assyrians, is now facing another crushing wave from the Babylonians. Their life kind of feels like turning from one calamity to another to another. Yes, it's what the nation deserved, but it was still crushing blow after crushing blow. And as they cried out to their God in their agony, it felt to them out of character for God not to respond. Why the silence? 
How long were they waiting? We don't know. Maybe a year, maybe five years. It could be a decade, more. How long have you been waiting as you cry out to God? But suddenly here, the prophetic message is revealed. Yahweh himself speaks like a flash of lightning against the dark sky. And it is a word to the weary and worn. A word to those who are bent down under the weight of living in a fallen world that reels under God's judgments. And it is a word for us every bit as much as it was for them. So, this morning, all you who are weary and worn, hear the word of God, which begins in verse 1 with God commissioning his preachers. Preachers like Isaiah, though this word of comfort speak tenderly, it's not just for Isaiah because in Hebrew the command is plural. All of you cry out. All of you comfort. All of you speak tenderly. Comfort. Speak tenderly. Your child did her very best work. And then she stood in front of her class and presented it. And all the kids teased her. She tried to hold it together. When she gets home, she just melts into a puddle of tears. What do you want to offer her in that moment? Your comfort. You want to speak tenderly to her. And that's, that's how God instructs his preachers to preach. Isaiah had been announcing judgment to ears that were closed. But now, it's a time for a message of comfort and tenderness. Because, because her time of judgment her time of exile, her time of reeling from the weight of her rebellion and sin, according to verse 2. Even a double weight, really feeling the sin, and the judgment that comes with it, it is nearing its end. Has she stopped sinning? Is that why? Why is it nearing its end? And then a voice cries. And the answer of why this word of comfort is because God himself is coming. Look at verses 3 to 5 with that first voice cries. The king is coming. So 
Make the way smooth and straight for his entry. Fill in the valleys. Flatten the mountains. Level the uneven ground. Lay that base course with ample gravel. Finish it with luxurious cobblestone. Roll out the red carpet because the long-awaited, the long-expected king is arriving. Now this is the first clear clue that the promise of Isaiah 40 goes far beyond just the time of Israel and her return from exile. Because all of the gospel writers tell us that this herald, who's preparing the way for the coming king, is John the Baptist. Which means, for all of us who live in the shadow of the coming king, who live in the era of the Messiah, there is implicit in his very coming a word of comfort, a tender word for us. And that is why God is here commissioning all preachers, you have a new message, a message of comfort. Speak tenderly. The king is on his way. And this is good news. You call verses 1 to 5 the preacher's commission. And if you do, then verses 6 to 7 should be called the preacher's reticence. The preacher's reticence. There's another call to the preacher. He's already told, cry. And then again, verse 6. Cry. Seems our preacher is a bit reticent. It's not just the congregation that can grow weary. The preacher is old and ragged. He's been burned time and time again. He's faithfully preached God's word as God's called him to do over and over and over again only to see the people reject his message and harden their hearts. Now let's just say his faith in humanity is not real high. So many preachers can feel this, especially the older seasoned preachers. Not a lot of faith in humanity. You can see that. Because when the voice says cry, how does Isaiah respond? What am I supposed to say? You tell me to comfort people. Well, they have more in common with grass. For glory, it's like a flower. It flashes for a moment, it's quickly gone. What do you expect me to say to such grass-like people? And Isaiah's pronouncement is spot on. He's right about us. We are grass. Verse 
Peter 1 picks up this same phrase from Isaiah and affirms it in the New Testament. We shouldn't have much faith in humanity. Well, in response, God reiterates his commission. Verses 8 and 9. Through his messenger, he tells Isaiah, Well, Isaiah, don't let a few bad apples spoil the bunch. Yes, there are some bad people out there, but there's a lot of good ones. No. He says nothing of the sort. He agrees with Isaiah's pronouncement. See that in verse 8? This is how you know it's a new voice. This is just repeating what was said earlier. The grass withers. The flower fades. But then you come to what you might call a mic drop moment. But the word of our God stands forever. Yes, people are fickle. You shouldn't have much faith in them. But you know what isn't fickle? My word. It's abiding. It's an impregnable rock. You don't know what to cry to these people because they're grass. Cry out my word because that's where the power is. We can speak tenderly. We can speak words of comfort because of the power of God's word. It can change people. It will do the work that God set set it out to do. We can trust it. Yes, at times it hardens hearts. And Isaiah experienced that. But when God ordains it to do so, it also melts hearts. So yes, don't put your faith in man. Put your faith in God's word. In light of that, in verse 9, God tells Isaiah to go up with Zion and herald the news, to lift up his voice with Jerusalem and herald the good news. Get up on the highest of mountain. Shout out the good news that I'm giving you. Preach the sermon I'm giving you without the fear of man. And then at the end of verse 9, he gives the thesis of the sermon. You see it at the end of verse 9? Behold your God. Behold your God. Preachers were commissioned. One preacher was reticent, and so God recommissioned the preacher. And then in verses 10 to 31, we find the sermon that he is to preach. So verses 10 to 31 are the sermon. Now we already know why he's preaching the sermon. 
We know the sermon's aim because we snuck a look at verse 21. It's a sermon for people who feel like maybe God's forgotten about them. And it's a really powerful and compelling sermon. So I actually want to go through it just section by section. But my goal in it is for all of us to behold our God, to see him rightly, so that we who are weary and worn down will be comforted. So first look at verses 10 and 11. When the king comes, he'll come in strength, his strong arm bared. He comes bringing forth both reward and punishment. But when he comes, he'll also be the good shepherd. The mighty coming king will also gently lead the young. He'll say things like, let the little children come unto me, for to such is the kingdom of God. He'll take the lambs into his bosom, those stubborn, filthy, needy, smelly creatures. Jesus came flipping tables and shutting the mouths of hypocritical religious leaders. Yet he also came touching lepers, healing unclean women, reaching out to Samaritans, dining with tax collectors. Which one are you? The proud, stubborn, self-righteous? Or the weak, the sinner, the one who feels his, needs for help, his need for help. Every one of us has a right to be in that second category if we're willing to admit it. Which means that every one of us can know God's comfort, the comfort of our Savior. Powerful, yet a tender shepherd. This is our God. We can trust him. Then look at verses 12 to 17. This is a series of uh, beautiful, interconnected rhetorical questions, all playing with a sense of scale. Think about the hollow of your hand. What can you use to measure with that hollow of your hand? We don't really do that anymore, do we? I don't know if they ever did, but I don't measure things in the hollow of my hand. Sometimes I'll put a pinch of salt in something. Yahweh's pinch of salt is all the dust of the earth. What he uses the hollow of his hand to measure all the water in the oceans and the seas. You get a sense of scale. 
God is far bigger than we can grasp. Speaking of scales, what do you use a scale to measure? I use mine to learn the depressing news of how much weight I've gained. When God uses his scale, he's weighing the mountains, the Niagara Scarpment. How about when you get your tape measure out, what you're measuring? Measuring how, how much the kids have grown, how long to cut the fabric. But you can't use it to measure God's spirit. Nor, nor will your best self-help books give you much aid in giving counsel to God. I mean, there's some pretty smart people in here. Some of you can find, sew a really, uh, a really nice dress or make a mean lasagna or a beautifully made end table. I, mean, I think some of you even know how to tune a carburetor. But God created this world. He built elephants and ants. He created atoms and asteroids. He filled outer space with these burning bowls of gas. And it's not like he's going, hey, Freddie, you're really good with engines. Could you give me some advice on how to place this moon so it properly controls the tides of the earth? No. We don't teach him knowledge. We don't show him the way of understanding, though we act like we do, don't we? Oh, that's your design? I've got a better idea. Oh, that's what you're instructing me to do? Not so sure, God. So where does leave people? Where does it leave our mightiest achievements, our nation states? Where does it leave China and Russia? Where does it leave the United States or Great Britain? Where does it leave Canada? Verse 15. Well, a bit like a drop in a bucket. Or if you want to go back to the scales. You know how sometimes you get a little dust on your scale? Explains the weight gain, right? Actually, no. That dust doesn't even register on the scale. And that's how the nations are compared to God. Or you take the great forests of Lebanon, it's like a box of matches. I'm gripped by how 
verse 17 ends. The nations are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I don't know if you hear the echo of that language, but it's echoing Genesis 1, the world before God brought order to it. He made us out of nothing. So no, the nations don't really intimidate him. But they intimidate us, don't they? I mean, we can sweat quite a bit over who's in office and what laws they make. Especially when the laws they're making make it harder for believers or worse for society. Just like the rulers were doing in Isaiah's time. I mean, it sure seemed to them like that's where the power was. Life would be a lot better if we were stronger than the Assyrians, if we were stronger than the Babylonians. Didn't seem like Yahweh was much of a match for them. They stomped right over us, and now it seems they'll still have us under their thumb for quite some time. Never mind that God is the one who ordained their rise as part of his judgment on them, just as he had told them ahead of time. Well, if it's not the nations that have the power, maybe it's the gods of those nations. Have a look at verses 18 to 20. No, you can't really compare God to their idols. They're made of wood by people, unable to even move on their own. The true God is not an idol. There are many false gods, and a simple examination of them exposes just how fake they are. I think, I think today, many of our idols are still connected to gold and silver. And I think, just like the idols of that day, they're powerless, ultimately. They can't deliver. And life has a way of teaching us that when we place our faith in idols. Those idols let us down. The true God is not to be compared to security gods that we can build with our own hands. And then verses 21 to 26 bring the sermon to kind of its crescendo. And it starts with a crucial question there in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? People of the book shouldn't need to be reminded of who their God is. 
The sermon that's being preached is not covering new information. It's a review. Brothers and sisters, our walk with God is an open book exam. When we are in the crucible, scratching our heads, we gotta get out the book and remind ourselves. I remember one particularly hard season that Karen and I were going through. And we would just open up the Bible and read a psalm every night together. And it was amazing how powerfully the truths of God's word ministered to our souls in those times. Do you not know? Have you not heard? And we have heard. We can know. Let's look in our Bibles. The sermon continues. Verse 22 returns us to the sense of scale. The grand circuit of the heavens, which sits so far from us, so far out of reach, well, he sits above that. And it's his people like grasshoppers. Skies, just like curtains. Or um, I go camping with my family and I'll set up a tent. I can even set it up by myself. Get this nice tent big enough you can stand up in it. Well, if you want to get a sense of scale, that's, that's what Yahweh did when he established our atmosphere. <laughs> like me setting up a tent. And then verse 23 reminds us again of his power over nations, princes brought to nothing. Mighty Hitler, suicide in his own bunker. Saddam Hussein, cowering in a tiny hole outside of his hometown. Osama bin Laden, hiding with his opium and his wives and his children in a hideout in Pakistan. Listen, big shot, you ain't so big. In fact, you're nothing. Listen, citizens. Those politicians ain't such a big deal. In fact, they're nothing. No offense, Joseph Rosinski. <laughs> the language of verse 23, you notice how it echoes verse 17, which echoed Genesis 1? Empty, nothing. Don't worry. Donald Trump doesn't intimidate God. Nor does Vladimir Putin. Believe it or not, Justin Trudeau doesn't even intimidate God. Because man is but grass. Verse 24. 
Scarcely is he planted and he's gone. Napoleon rises and he falls. Mussolini with his puffed out chest, completely gone. And then verse 25 repeats the question of verse 18. This is actually the second set of repeated questions. This time, to whom will you compare God? The other one, do you not know? Have you not heard? Well, when verse 25 asks, to whom will you compare God? Unlike in verse 18, he's not mocking immobile idols. Instead, he's liking God to a military general leading out his troops. Ah, but with a difference in scale. Are you catching the pattern of this chapter? God is leading out not soldiers, but the hosts of heaven, the stars. And unlike human generals, God can name every single one in his ranks. We've got this uh, James Webb Space Telescope. You guys seen some of its images that it's taking pictures right now? It's incredible. And our best scientists using it still can't even begin to count all the stars. There are so many stars that there's a company that if you'll pay them enough money will name one of the stars after you. But God's already named them, every one of them, and he can call them out by name. Maple Avenue, let's behold our God. And that takes us to verses 27 to 31. The preacher ends with application. But because we snuck that advanced peak at verse 27, we knew he was going here all along. He's preaching to people who feel they're invisible to God. Who in this room feels right now like you're invisible to God? People who've cried out to God but feel their case is disregarded by him. That's probably most of you at some point. Certainly is me at times. And this is what the sermon says to them. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You feel faint with no might. But when we wait for God, really wait on Him. He gives us a strength that is of a different order than youthful vigor. It's a strength that cannot be spent 
youthful vigor. It's a beautiful thing. How many of you have teenagers like I do? I guess at some point it seems like, oh, where'd the youthful vigor go? They're lying on a couch. But youthful strength, they can run and run and run. But they eventually run out of gas. But this strength that God is promising, it's like the water Jesus offered the woman at the well. You drink it, and you're just never thirsty again. You get this strength, and you're just strong. But this kind of strength, the strength from God comes to those who, what's the key word? Who wait. You can't microwave it. You don't get to brew this one in a Keurig. Why is that? Perhaps because as you wait, you come to really know God's character with greater depth. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Through the hills and the valleys of your life, you open up the Bible and read it. And as you do, you see God keeps his promises. Most clearly in Jesus, the one promised here in Isaiah 40, who did come and did become stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Not just dealing with the awful things man did to him, but then dealing with the wound that justice gave. You begin to see with greater clarity creation and how it testifies to God. You can see the rise and fall of so many in history and God's constancy. So you wait. You wait maybe another week. Maybe another decade. Maybe longer. One of the things that would be cool to do in Isaiah 40 is to show all the connections to the book of Lamentations. But I just want you to hear Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 to 27. Which says, Yahweh is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh. It's good for a man that he bear that yoke in his youth. Wait. Wait and trust. Because if you do, you will grow wings that will enable you to fly with a strength that can never be stolen. Not a youth-like strength that eventually runs out, but a tested, attested, weathered, proven, God-given strength that will never be depleted. God meant this passage to be heard today for you and for me.
Yes, our struggles living in a fallen world are different from what the nation of Israel was facing, but it's a passage for us. We saw that because in verses 3 to 5, it's applied to John the Baptist. We're going to see it when we get to chapter 42, which speaks specifically of Jesus, which the gospel writers also make clear. So yes, this particular message of comfort had some partial fulfillment when God would raise up Cyrus of the Persians who would defeat the Babylonians and allow the exiled Jews to return to their land. But Isaiah wanted the people of his day to see that little victory as a mere taste of the far greater day of comfort that would eventually come when the good shepherd would arise. And come and rescue his people. When this prophecy originally came, the preacher himself was a bit jaded and fed up with his people. And the people themselves felt abandoned by God. And maybe that's how you feel, a bit disillusioned. So would you allow God's word to speak to your heart? Today, do you not know? Have you not heard? Will we hear God's message to us? Will we behold our God? Let's pray. Father, you know every heart in this room in a way that I do not and cannot. And you've intended this word to be spoken today. Use it as you see fit. All men are like grass, but your word lasts forever. It's powerful. So help us to behold our God, to see him, to see you on the proper scale. In Christ's name, amen.